Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. This is Nathan cornish Rayleigh speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. I'm a neurodivergent speech pathologist with lived experience of ADHD and a cisgender and proudly gay man. June is Pride Month around the world. Celebrating pride and telling the stories of LGBTQIA individuals is much more profound than a feel-good recognition of diversity. Coming out and being visible is an act of resistance to systems that don't acknowledge or aren't inclusive of LGBTQIA people. It can be deeply meaningful to other members of the community who are finding their way to live a happy and authentic life. And it's an incredibly effective tool in undoing transphobia and homophobia. It's harder to fear or other someone that you know and love. And the mass of social changes we've experienced, at least in my lifetime, is due in large part to the accumulation of millions of small but courageous acts of coming out and living proud. So today's episode is about celebrating excellence and living authentically and how speech pathology is better off because of the LGBTQIA professionals in our ranks. But we recognize that celebrating this community can also be a transformative act, and we hope it is. First up, I'm speaking with Sindel Nelson. Sindel is a speech pathologist at Better Rehab in Tasmania. I met Sindel at the Speech Pathology Australia Conference in Hobart at a meeting that they organized for LGBTQIA individuals and allies, which to my knowledge was one of the first, if not the first of its kind for our profession in Australia. And that's remarkable. So Sindel, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to start off by acknowledging um, the traditional owners of the land that I live and work on. I live and work on Palawa Pakana land in Nipaluna. Um, and this is originally the land of the Moanina people. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. And this Pride Month, I'd particularly like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brother boys and sister girls, my trans siblings. I hope you're having a fantastic Pride Month. Thank you. Uh, to get us started, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Sindel Nelson. My pronouns are they, them. Um, I'm from white settler background. I'm queer, non-binary and autistic. Uh, some other words I used to describe myself are bisexual and genderqueer or gender non-conforming or transgender. Um, these are words that I've chosen for how I see myself and how I interact with the world and how I'd like the world to interact with me. Um, I don't necessarily see these words as labels. I think labels are words that other people choose for you. Um, I see these words as, a con- as concepts that help me connect with other people. And I've chosen to share a range of the language that I use to describe myself in the hope that it helps more people connect with what I have to say. Uh, it turns to some other fun facts about myself. I live in Nipaluna, Hobart, uh, with my partner and our cat. Um, we moved here from Melbourne a year ago. I love to cook. I love to learn about history. I'm a trivia nut. Um, I love to sing along very badly to musicals. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've lived in a few different places around Australia and around the world. I'm originally from Adelaide 
And as you said, I'm a speech speech pathologist like most of our listeners. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about the work that you've done as a speech pathologist? Yeah, I've been working clinically as a speech pathologist for 10 years. I spent my first seven years working in acute and subacute stroke and neurological rehab. Uh, Part of my last role involved working in palliative care, which I found really rewarding. Um, I'm a supervisor. I've been a clinical educator. I love doing that part of the work as well. I currently work in private practice disability, uh, which was a pretty big career change, but I I enjoy the work so much. Um, I found an organization to work for whose values I share and who have been really supportive of me and my needs. And this has had the single biggest positive impact on my ability to thrive in our profession. Um, and, you know, working in community, a community setting as well gives me the autonomy and the flexibility that I really need to work at my best. So you mentioned that your workplace is, is inclusive and that's made a big difference to you. What, what about it has been inclusive? Um, look, uh, to my knowledge, I'm the first out non-binary person who started working at this company. I'm not the only one now, um, but... From the start, they've been really open to any kind of feedback that I had to give around, um, you know, this is how I'd, I'd like you to share this information about myself. This is how I'd like you to share my pronouns. Um, and I was going to talk, you know, just a little bit more later on about like specific people in um, my workplace who have um, who have been really supportive, even like fiercely supportive, which has just made such a huge difference to have other people, you know, take up some of some of the work of, um, you know, acknowledging my pronouns and educating other people. Um, and that's, yeah, that's made no. such a huge difference. Yeah, sounds like you've had some great allies there in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does your lived experience bring to your practice and as a speech pathologist? Yeah, I had a really big think about this question. Um, so when I first got my current job in disability, I did a whole lot of research into the disability rights movement. My drive to learn about disability from um, a political perspective came from my experience as a queer person, especially living through the marriage equality debate in Australia. Um, I wanted to understand what disabled activists said they needed as a community and what they often didn't get from professionals and their supports that they really needed. I wanted to understand that perspective um, and embed what they said they needed into my practice. Still still a work in progress, you know, still will always be a work in progress. Um, but yeah, I, I came across a quote used in various social and political movements throughout history, including the disability rights movement, And this really resonated with me as a queer person. And this was nothing about us without us. Mm. I saw and felt the impacts of what can happen when people in positions of power don't listen to or include a community that they're making policy about or they're working with. You know, the, the marriage equality debate was a really painful thing to go through as a queer person. You know, having people at my workplace, having my colleagues talk about what rights I did and didn't deserve. Um, and, but, you know, it gave me a really small sense of what, um, what the disabled community goes through constantly. Um, I feel so privileged to have the training to support people to communicate their needs and their individuality and their own self-expression. And I think we have a huge role to play 
as speech pathologists in supporting people to have a voice to fight for their rights. And that's, that's something I feel every day. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you know, I appreciate the fact that understanding what it feels like to be minoritized in, in systems, um, can open us up to listen to other people's experiences. So, mm, yeah. yeah. So we, we talked about the, LGBTQIA plus collective that you're forming and the the meeting at the SPA conference. What what made you decide to organize that? Hmm. So many reasons. <laughs> um, I yeah. Look, I want every every speech pathologist, everyone who works in our profession, to feel seen and connected and like they have something valuable to contribute to the profession. I know I've often felt invisible because of my identity, particularly the intersections in my identity. And I've noticed this as a recurring theme in conversations I've had with other speech pathologists, other health professionals, other professionals um, that I've, you know, I'm friends with or I've worked with who are minorities. Um, and in my current workplace and team, I'd experienced for the very first time in my career what it was like to be accepted and included for every part of who I am. And it was such a positive and empowering experience for me that I just want to make sure other people get that opportunity as well. I think connection is a big part of figuring out identity and being able to fully express yourself. Uh, it's, it's quite exhausting having to mask your identity as, an, um, you know, as a trans person, as an autistic person. Um, and I was, I was in a period of burnout a few years ago and coming out as trans in the workplace was actually a part of my recovery. Mm. Uh, it allowed me to be seen and, and respected for who I am, which has made a huge difference uh, to my ability just to do my job well and feel like I, I belong in a workplace. I belong in our profession. Um, I, In terms of the spa conference, I'd, I'd actually never been to a spa conference before. So when I found out that it was going to be in Hobart, I, at, you know, 10 minutes away from where I live, I thought, okay, all right, this, this seems like a good opportunity. I started thinking about what I wanted to get out of it. And I'd been looking into LGASP, which is the LGBTQIA plus uh, caucus that's part of ASHA in the United mm -hmm. States. And I learned that they had existed since the 1980s and they got their start at an ASHA conference. And I mean, they, they had an organisation through the AIDS crisis, through multiple gay and lesbian and trans rights movements, through marriage equality debates. And I just thought, oh, gosh, I wish I had that. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I couldn't be the only one who felt that way. So I, I had a moment of, if not me, who, if not now, when? And I got it organised. Yeah, well, and invisibility is just so vital to the well-being of... of queer individuals, but also I think to the, the health of our profession. And so I absolutely applaud you, put, you know, putting, seeing that need and putting together this collective. And so were you surprised by the response that you had from participants? So when I, when I organized this meetup, I just had this picture in my head of me like sitting alone in a room with a rainbow flag. But, you know, fortunately that wasn't the case. Um, I had told Spa, um, you know, who supported me in organising this, that, you know, I estimated about 20 to 25 people would attend, um, complete estimate. Um, and 
I, you know, in the, in the days leading up to it, cause it was on the last day of the conference. Um, you know, I met a few people and I was kind of advertising this meetup. And so a couple of them arrived early for the meetup to help me set up. Um, and during the meetup, uh, one of these people who arrived early turned to me and said, you've just hit your target of, you know, over 20 people. Um, and there were still people coming into the room. So yeah, I just thought, yep, people, people want this. This is something that we need. So what's next for the collective? So I'm, I'm still putting the word out there. Um, you know, this will be a helpful part of that. Um, so it's, it's a collective, um, for people who are LGBTQIA plus it's also for allies and, you know, it's also for minorities who want to feel a part of something. So I'm planning to organize an online meetup for the whole, whole collective, um, in the next couple of months. And I'm also hoping to organize a meetup that just, um, includes the LGBTQIA plus members. So for the queer members, I'd, I'd like the meetup to be a safe space for people to share their experiences, make connections, make friends, um, and, and get support for being, you know, a queer professional in a heteronormative world. Um, for the wider organisation, I'd love to provide resources for allies to learn more about how to be good allies to their colleagues and their clients. Really, the, the possibilities are endless and it's going to be based on what members want to get out of it and what gaps there are that currently need bridging. You know, I'm, I'm not an academic. Um, I know there's lots of research around what um, queer professionals and queer people need out of healthcare. Uh, and I want to come at these issues from uh, more of a social and an activist perspective uh, and, and put some of the recommendations from this research into, into action. So anyone who wants to be a part of this, please get in touch. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll get Nathan to make sure my um, contact details are in the show notes and there's going to be the survey um, to sign up, register your interest in this collective uh, in the show notes. Um, so get in touch. It's going to take all kinds. You know, I'm going to bring my skills and experience to this, but it's going to take a lot more than what I can bring. <laughs> so please join us. Well, that sounds like a really ambitious effort. Um, and... Uh, but hopefully you'll see the same kind of support, you know, around that ongoing that, that we saw at that meeting. So you've talked a bit about the importance of visibility. Do you have any other thoughts about the visibility of LGBTQIA plus individuals in speech pathology and why that matters? Well, to quote Sally Rugg, visibility matters because it's about choice. So. It's the choice to be is be who you are at work um, and not have to do all this extra work to hide parts of yourself because you don't feel safe or you're worried that you won't be accepted. Some people don't want to share this part of themselves in a workplace and that's their choice and they're right. Um, some of us also don't have that choice because we're outed or because it's not an option not to be out. Uh, for example, I, I have to be out as non-binary so people get my pronouns right. Um, you know, I, I still make a choice in some situations not to correct people who get my pronouns wrong because there's a lot of misunderstanding about non-binary and trans folks. And, you know, I work in, in people's homes sometimes. Um, I just don't know that that'll be a safe place for me to be out. And, you know, it's not about me in that context uh, anyway. But with my colleagues, I do expect that 
I will be treated with respect and people will make an effort with my pronouns because that's that's what I need to work um, work safely and work effectively. Um, and, and visibility matters for other LGBTQIA plus folks so we can find each other and we can support each other and we can educate others on the changes that need to happen to make this world an inclusive place. And we're all going to benefit from that, whether it's LGBTQIA plus speech pathologists or other professionals we work with, as well as the patients and the clients that we serve. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, we are everywhere. Um, We deserve the same choices as everyone else, whether it's, you know, choosing to make sure our names and pronouns are correct, choosing to share what we did on the weekend, choosing to share if we have a partner, choosing to share our lives. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've just made up something that I was doing on the weekend when a client or a colleague asked because I wasn't sure of saying, I'm going to a drag show or I'm going to a queer ball or I'm going queer speed dating was going to, you know, put me in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my straight colleague was able to say they're going out with their heterosexual partner and nobody, nobody bats an eye. So for me, visibility means working towards our lives being small talk, you know? Um, And if anyone's looking for some scientific evidence on why visibility matters, I've asked Nathan to include an article in the show notes about the experience of LGBTQIA plus physiotherapists in their profession. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find an equivalent study um, about speech pathologists, which I think reinforces that we're not yet visible enough. Um, so have a read of this article. It really resonated with my experience. So I'm sure there are some parallels between uh, queer physios experiences and, you know, the queer uh, speech pathologist experience. Um, and it does also give some ideas on how to improve individual and organisational um, allyship in a professional context. So have a read. Excellent. Thanks. Yes, and we will definitely include that in the show notes and I look forward to reading that myself. Um, final question, you know, this, this episode is really about queer excellence. And, um, I was wondering if there's anybody in or out of our profession that you've looked up to who has encouraged you to be your authentic self in your work life. Mm, Yeah. Uh, So, so many people and I can't possibly name them all, but I'll, um, I'll go through a few that stand out. So, um, for me, being being a part of the Australian roller derby community for a number of years gave me a space to explore my identity and also to learn what acceptance looks like. So I'd, I'd like to give some credit to um, Australian roller derby culture. Um, and in terms of specific people, um, Sally Rugg and Grace Petrie are two strong feminist lesbian activists who I look up to immensely. And I think it was a social media post um, Sally Rugg did around the marriage equality debate that encouraged me to come out as queer to my wider work team at the time. Um, I I also had a manager at my current job uh, who was an OT and a proud lesbian. um, And knowing that she had my back and would fiercely educate others on my pronouns and my identity meant that I had I had the courage and the support that I needed to develop my leadership skills. So I have her to thank for, you know, where I'm sitting today. Um, and I guess 
I've only recently started coming out as autistic in my, my workplace and, you know, as a professional. And there are so many amazing people working in the neurodiversity affirming movement in our profession uh, and some of whom I had the privilege to meet at the the recent spa conference. Um, I, I had such a great time talking to some of the neurodivergent speech pathologist panel. So I wanted to acknowledge uh, Amy Fitzpatrick, Kath Fernando, uh, Katie Booth and Sandy Lynn. Uh, they've inspired me to share my, you know, the autistic part of my ident- identity as well um, as a professional. Um, and that's also really encouraged me to examine the intersectionality of my queerness and my autistic identity. So that's that's still something that I'm I'm reflecting on. And I also really value the work that Tara Lewis is doing in sharing Aboriginal truth and advocating for her community in our profession. Uh, that's a huge inspiration for me to add to the work that's that's already happening to improve uh, the lives of people in my community. Yeah. Thank you. Well, to our listeners, you can let Sindel know about your interest in participating in the LGBTQIA plus collective and the direction you'd like to see that go by responding to the survey linked in the show notes. So Sindel Nelson, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me, Nathan. Up next, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Asul. Dr. Asul is a senior lecturer, researcher, and speech pathologist at La Trobe University in Bendigo. And they helped develop La Trobe's short course on speech pathology with trans and gender diverse people. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Azul. Thank you. <laughs> happy to be here. Uh, we're happy to have you with us. Uh, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, maybe the first thing is that I'm speaking on and working on and living on uh, Jajarong country. So uh, in Bendigo. And um, I originally did my training in speech pathology in Germany, and German is also my first language. So working in Australia now is means, you know, a cultural change, means um, having to use the English language as at most times. Um, yeah, and so I have like a, a perspective on speech pathology that is informed by my German training and the work I've done in Australia. And I've always found it very interesting how there are differences between how um, the profession is practiced in different uh, countries. And well, secondly, um, I'm a gender diverse person. I identify as non-binary. And um, since my master's research, which I did in Germany, I focused my research efforts pretty much on um, the question of voice and communication of gender diverse people and the, you know, how speech pathology can be helpful in supporting um, voice and communication, but not only voice and communication. Recently, I'm particularly focused on how voice and communication also relate to the well-being of um, gender diverse people. And the contributions we as a profession may may make to um, enhance this well-being or to be a barrier to um, this well-being. Yeah, and I know that you um, 
that you're interested in feminist and transgender study theories and how they relate to research and practice. So how do they intersect with the work that, that speech pathology or that's done in the speech pathology profession? I, I didn't mention now, and I should have, <laughs> that I did my PhD in the humanities and it was basically a project that was, you know, informed by feminist and gender studies uh, theories. And it was exploring um, voice as a notion, as a practice. And I did that through um, creative practice. So I brought together theories and creative practice, which were sound recordings um, and theoretical essays and, you know, creative writing. Um, so that was my thesis, very unusual. And um, I had to leave um, the speech pathology department, unfortunately, um, in order to be able to do that uh, work. So I ended up working in the humanities and this is where my influence came from. And so I became aware that there outside speech pathology, there's so many disciplines working in the field of gender and communication and also voice. And um, they have very different ideas uh, compared to speech pathologies ideas on, you know, what voice is, what communication is, what subjectivity is, what gender is, how it all, you know, comes together. And so this, so, so in a way I was lucky to end up in a, in a new field. And so I did a lot of reading um, of different um, people's work um, and then sort of realized, wow, it is a big task to apply all of that to speech pathology. Because of course, also in the humanities, or maybe not of course, but it was the case, or I guess it's still the case that there wasn't a lot of engagement with speech pathology at all. And so nobody had done that application work for me um, um, before I, I sort of started it. And um, yeah, I noticed how many barriers there are uh, when you do that sort of work, because it's basically also a different way of thinking. It's a different way of um, doing research. It's a different way of writing. And, um, but I knew I had to publish eventually in speech pathology journals in order to make an impact on the profession. And um, it took me a very long time <laughs> to have my first paper uh, accepted in a, in a speech pathology journal. Um, because just the way of, um, you know, what in the humanities is considered research, which means, you know, definitely theoretical discussion papers um, are totally accepted. You know, you don't have to uh, work with research participants at all. But um, what's what's important in, in that type, type of work is really to go deep into the theories and to see also which different theories work together and what that then means for your exploration. So it doesn't mean that you do take a particular theoretical perspective and that theoretical perspective might be incompatible with other theoretical perspectives. And it's a little bit, um, you know, um, the case that um, given that in speech pathology, there hasn't been a lot of engagement with those theories. 
um, the theoretical understanding of, say, just stick with what is voice and um, what is gender and how do they interact. This theoretical um, understanding in speech pathology, I would say, is very, very limited. Um, and it becomes obvious when you've read other piece, pieces of work that um, this needs to change. You know, there, there needs to be more theoretical engagement. And we can no longer afford to just say, oh, well, but... <laughs> well, this is our scope of practice and our scope of practice and our scope of research sort of doesn't necessarily include engagement with other approaches. So it sounds like there's a lot that we can learn from the humanities and from other uh, professions about the way that we see ourselves as a profession and, and others and the way that we do research where where do we start with all that or how do we <laughs> yes that's a that's a very very good question um well i mean i think the work needs to be done and i hope that there'll be more people you know um uh interested in theoretical approaches to whatever it is we do in speech pathology you know you, you can apply this to to any aspect of of the work and um what i've learned and i think it's a, a very important finding the problem is that people didn't have the time or opportunity to to read all of this other material so um they are easily overwhelmed when um uh you know certain theoretical ideas are, are raised. So I think what we need to do is really to introduce these ideas and probably write a lot of tutorials, um, textbooks, uh, give presentations to, to sort of make it easier for speech pathologists who've been trained, you know, in the, in the current system to um, get a sense of these ideas and then also to uh, relate to how they are important for for their practice. Well, switching gears a little bit, uh, um, I'm curious what what does your lived experience bring to your research and practice in speech pathology? Well, um, basically started when I was thinking about my master's thesis uh, topic uh, in Germany, and. Um, it was really a situation where I felt like I, I've hardly seen any work in speech pathology um, discussing the vocal situation of um, gender diverse people. And um, it took a little bit of, you know, being courageous enough to basically say, okay, I want to do research on my own situation. And so it happened, be, it happened to be exactly the time when I was finally successful in um, being able to access testosterone treatment in Germany. And that was also the time of my thesis. And so as a voice user or occupational voice user, I was, of course, very interested in, you know, having a look at, you know, what happens to people's voice when they start taking testosterone and they are already adults, so way after puberty. And there was only one paper in, you know, published at that time 
focusing on gender diverse people um, presumed female at birth, because all of the other work was only on gender diverse people presumed male at birth. And um, yeah, so I basically jumped in and thought, that's ideal. There's a massive gap. <laughs> I will make a contribution, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, so I um, did started doing research with um, gender diverse people, presumed female at birth, and um, I included myself in my first study and so made recordings of my voice, um, observed how it changed and... Um, yeah, got a sense of um, two things, basically, that the the pitch can decrease for people who take testosterone um, uh, in adulthood, but not necessarily for all people. Does it become as low enough um, as they want? But the other, I, I think almost, uh, you know, just as ex important point is, uh, many gender diverse people, presumed female at birth, um, experience difficulties with their voice function. Mm. And so that was also something, you know, a question I sort of introduced, I believe, a little bit <laughs> into the, the research literature that we have to have a look uh, at that. So we have to have a look at what does testosterone do to voice function? And there I found it really interesting that in the 60s, there, there was a lot of research on women who were prescribed testosterone-containing medication for um, to treat cancer, mostly, I think. And they had, um, you know, developed what we now call hormonal dysphonia from this. Hmm. And so I was sort of thinking, oh, but like from the traditional perspective, what's the difference between gender diverse people presumed female at birth and cisgender women, like from a, you know, anatomical physiological perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was no surprise to me that um, also gender diverse people who take testosterone may experience voice difficulties um, related to that hormone treatment. And um, yeah. So, th so that's basically uh, what I found as a start in, in that study. And, um, but I also for myself, um, I, you know, was able to see that um, if you spend some time with your voice, it can be entirely safe, at least for some people, to take testosterone and to have this voice change and um, to you know, be able to continue doing the work you've done. And there were also singers included in the in the study and um, they showed the same thing. So that was also very encouraging to see that um, it wasn't necessarily uh, dangerous um, to, to, you know, engage in this part of my transition or, you know, body modification, whatever mm -hmm. you might call it. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like you've responded to a gap in in our knowledge and, and research in an area that related to your lived experience. Um, and it also sounds like there weren't a lot of people to 
kind of look to for for guidance or inspiration. Um, so why why does visibility of LGBTQIA plus individuals in speech pathology matter? Uh, working at the university, working with students, um, it is very important to be able to show to them, look, there are people of all kinds of diversity working in speech pathology and they are valued and they, you know, produce amazing work and um, they are just, they have a, have a home in the profession rather than um, the, you know, the image that has been portrayed and many people have also um, perceived this as a limitation uh, to sort of think, okay, speech pathology is basically white girls working with people or, you know, playing with children was a little bit the, you know, the prejudice um, that was pretty prevalent in, in Germany. And um, I think the most powerful message we can send to other people is when we when we're able to show that as speech pathologists, you know, we can be gender diverse, we can be gay, we can be a First Nations person, we can have all kinds of intersections of um, uh, diversity. Um, and yeah, that's just part of the work we do. And it is also, you know, um, accepted or um, even, you know, an accepted practice within the profession that speech pathologists bring in their, their own lived experience and really check the field and have a, have a look at, oh, so how would I feel as a speech pathology client if um, I had to um, seek those services? Would I feel included? Would I feel seen? Yeah, and I, I think that's a nice recap of the importance of, of how visibility can create a space where our service users feel, feel safe and included. Mm. Uh, to wrap things up, I just wondered if there's uh, any final thoughts or um, things that you wanted to share with our listeners. Well, um, I'm personally very excited about the changes to the code of ethics uh, speech pathology has completed and also to the professional standards. And so I think that the whole notion of cultural responsiveness that this has now been introduced and has a has a clear place within the profession. I think that is a very good thing, and um, and I think also practices around inclusion and you know acknowledgement of First Nations people has increased so much. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I think as a profession in Australia, we've done a very good job there. Um, the only thing I think that needs to be added to that, that is, is this understanding that culture and diversity goes beyond what, um, you know, in some contexts might be discussed as race or ethnicity. It does include also gender. It does include sexual orientation. It does include disability. So, there are so many more aspects of uh, culture 
we need to be responsive to as um, clinicians. And we need to be aware of so that, you know, all of our practices help people feel safe. And um, particular in, in relation to what is widely discussed, um, mostly in the mental health context of minority stress, I think we have to take that very seriously in speech pathology that we um, don't engage in practices that actually maintain uh, minority stress in the clients who are seeing us. And um, it's a bit tough to say, but I think there's a lot of work work ahead. And, uh, you know, we are at the very beginning. That's, that's sort of my impression. And, um, but the more individual speech pathologists the more work they do to um, get a better understanding of diversity and to get a better understanding what what does minority stress mean? What does privilege mean? Um, what also does trauma in relation to minority stress mean? Yeah. Um, the better we'll be in a, in a position to, to change the field uh, in this direction of cultural responsiveness. And yeah, so I think we need everybody on board <laughs> and it will take many years, but it will be worth the effort definitely because it's the sort of profession we want to be. We want to be an inclusive, supportive, responsive um, uh, profession. And so, you know, let's open to all of that work um, that is yet to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. And as a heads up to our listeners, uh, on a related note, we've invited Dr. Asul and some of their colleagues back in the very near future to talk about um, how speech pathologists can engage in responsive practices and, and well-being um, with trans and gender diverse individuals. So watch this space for that upcoming episode. Uh, Dr. Asul, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Our final guest for today is Catherine Fordyce, who is the CEO of Laurel House, a service in Tasmania that's doing important work in supporting survivors of sexual assault. Catherine is also a member of the Speech Pathology Australia Executive Board, so she's a very busy person, and we're so pleased that you've made time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me, Nate. Well, it's great to be speaking with you. To get us started, can you tell us a bit about the work that you do? Um, yeah, sure. I wouldn't mind by acknowledging the Palawa people um, of Lutruwida, where I am here in Tasmania. I'm joining you from Launceston, which is an important um, meeting point where three rivers converge here in Tasmania. So um, I really pay my respects to the Palawa people um, and, you know, really you know, truly admire the adversity they've overcome, particularly the violence that colonialism has um, caused across our, our state and beyond. Um, so, Nate, I currently work as the CEO of Royal House, as you said, uh, which is a sexual assault service in the north and northwest of Tasmania. Um, I have been working here for about two years um, and moved into this space after... Um, 20 odd years of working in um, 
disabilities, specifically working with neurodivergent people, autistic people. Um, and so that's been a big change for me over the last couple of years, but a really important and exciting change as I've kind of you know, springboarded off my speech pathology career. So um, our um, organisation, Laurel House, um, we provide support to people of all ages and all genders um, in relation to their experience of sexual violence. So that might be child sexual abuse, it might be um, sexual harassment, it might be rape or other forms of sexual assault, um, and also the people that support them. So the people that might experience vicarious trauma through supporting a person who has um, experienced sexual violence, so it might be parents or partners or, um, for that matter, speech pathologists or whoever it might be that might have um, received a disclosure or plays an important role in the life of someone who's experienced sexual violence. Um, and so we receive funding to do that work. Um, we look at um, response work, so when someone's just had um, an incident of sexual violence um, through their kind of long-term counselling work. Um, and the other, we have a few other um, projects that involve um, being focused on the education of the community, so both kind of community education, primary prevention work, um, work around um, different professionals so that they're better able to respond to disclosures of sexual violence. We specifically have a National Disability Insurance Scheme Information Linkages and Capacity Building Grant to work on um, supporting the workforce to better respond to disclosures of people with disabilities. Um, and we know that people with disabilities um, are far more likely to experience sexual harm and then have many more barriers to disclosing. So, um, you know, I think for me, that's where the linkages, I guess people sometimes think, wow, speech pathology, why are you in this space? And I think for me, you know, my work has always been about giving people a voice. Um, and that's very much indicative of the work that I continue to do. You know, the, some of the people we support may have communication um, disabilities, but others may simply, through the act of having um, experienced sexual violence, they've been disempowered and they've um, lost or have impacted their ability to kind of speak out and speak for what they need and to be heard in our community. So I think. For me, that's, that continues to be kind of one of the driving, kind of underpinning parts of my work, um, even though I'm not working as directly as a speech pathologist anymore. Mm, yeah. Well, it, it sounds like, you know, the range of experiences that you've had really come to play and, and, and providing this, you know, I'm sure what's challenging, but very valuable support. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I've had really, I've been really blessed over the years to work in a range of environments, particularly in um, multidisciplinary settings where I've, you know, been able to work um, with people with, from a range of different disciplines. And I think that that underpinning also in working alongside um, other professionals in this space, so working alongside social workers and psychologists and counsellors, lawyers, police, um, you know, really being able to truly understand what it's like to work in a multidisciplinary setting and understand the different views of the different professionals, but most importantly, that lived experience 
the partnership that you have with someone, your client, whoever that may be, um, and the partnership you have with them in terms of understanding what's important for them and how we support them best to navigate um, through what is a really tricky experience. And I think um, that all of those principles that I learned through my speech ability career working um, in multidisciplinary settings kind of just translates so easily into this kind of work. Um, and you know, I was really lucky throughout my career to work with a lot of um, autistic advocates and learnt a lot from all of them. So moving into this space um, and now working with survivor advocates, um, there's lots of kind of synergies around those that learning that I'm able to bring to every interaction that we're having um, in terms of the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I wondered if you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your own lived experience. Yeah, sure. Um, I went to uni in Brisbane um, and I it was quite a few years later before I came out as, and it depends on the day, whether I say that I'm lesbian or pansexual or queer, um, I'm certain that other people will um have different names for the same experiences that I have, but they're the words that I use kind of interchangeably. Um, and I think that that was a really tricky time for me. So I was in my late 20s after I had spent a lot of time kind of, you know, exploring who I was as a person and people knew me one way and having to come out because I'd entered into a longish term or what I saw was likely to be a longish term relationship with a then female partner um, and so that was a really tricky thing I think for me at the time because I these people knew me in one way and I was kind of outside of work kind of navigating and exploring things outside of that and so that was a really tricky time where I think I, I look back and I think wow, I really worked really hard to hide the gender of my um, partner and I kind of think back around having to, you know, rephrase things to avoid using the pronoun and um, it was it was an incredibly difficult um, that made every interaction, I guess, where you were talking about anything personal a much more um, challenging exchange um, and I think that... You know, that was for me, I was working through my own stuff um, and how I wanted to identify publicly. Um, and I guess in the end that was taken away from me where I was outed by somebody um, to my colleagues, um, which was obviously a really challenging time. Um, and I, I guess that the response I got from my colleagues was excellent. But I think that that I was really I hadn't been empowered to have that opportunity to disclose to um, my colleagues myself. So um, and and that kind of was yeah it was it was a really tricky time. And not long after that, I moved and had an experience of being discriminated against actively um, because of my sexuality. Um, at the time, I was working for an organisation whose espoused values um, indicated that they were really supportive of diversity um, and specifically um, they were an organisation that participated in Pride events and all kinds of things 
and yet my experience was um, of discrimination by my um, manager. Um, basically, my performance had been being viewed as being excellent up until the point that they met with my they met my female partner, and then um, suddenly after that, my very next performance review was indicating that I wasn't up to scratch, and there was other um, more active um, discriminatory, discriminatory comments. So yeah, it has been for me a really kind of interesting journey to be somebody who's much more comfortable these days of um, of being open with my sexuality in, in kind of public settings, but also in in my work. Um, and I think in some ways, some of my openness has really only come since working in the sexual violence space, um, where where diversity is something that is really critical in every aspect of what we do. Um, so I think for me that has been, you know, it's been a journey to get to the place where I feel as comfortable as I am now to be able to talk about my lived experience. Yeah. Well, it, it sounds like there's some really difficult things along the way. I mean, coming out's a very vulnerable and personal thing. And so to have that happen, you know, when you weren't ready, that's, that's difficult. Um, were, were there any, I guess, key moments or things along the way that helped you to become more comfortable being out in professional spaces? Um, I think that um, probably the more people that I met uh, in um, academia, uh, you know, I've, I've done a bit of research alongside colleagues in academia, as I've worked with kind of broader groups of people where there's been more um, people who have been out, I've felt more and more confident to do that. And I suppose, um, you know, if there's that saying that, you know, you can't be what you can't see, well, you know, for me, it wasn't visible um, who, were, who were the people in my sector, the people that I was looking up to professionally who were out. And so it was something that, um, was not necessarily easy to talk about. Um, and I think, you know, the, the responses that I got from colleagues were all incredibly supportive, but it was still something that was not talked about openly. And I think that, um, you know, well-meaning people along the way have said, you know, it doesn't matter to me that you're LGBTQIA, that you're lesbian, that you're queer, um, gay, whatever word we might have been using at that particular time. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me. And I, those kind of well-meaning people that say, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Well, it actually does matter. It matters to me. Um, and so I think that too often when people say those kinds of things in trying to be supportive, um, it actually is, it is anything but supportive. Um, and so I think for me, you know, the best questions I ever heard was, well, you know, where colleagues were saying, is there anything that we can do to help you feel more included? Is there something that we can do to make you feel safe in this environment? Um, you know, where they came to me with questions about how they supported their um, clients, where they valued my perspective in having a, you know, having a different experience to theirs. And I think that, that, that that's probably slowly over the years been something that um, has been really useful and I think it's it's interesting because, you know, anybody that knows me, which 
quite a few people, I suspect, that will listen to this will, is that it probably will be a surprise to them that, I, that I've not always been confident about this kind of conversation because I'm confident or presenting like I'm confident in lots of other environments. But I think that um, when it comes to something that's entirely personal like this is, um, it is much more difficult to, you know, to be able to stand up and do, and, and really you shouldn't have to do the emotional labour for everybody else in relation to um, what they need to know about what it's like to be someone from the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like, you know, visibility obviously was a very important thing for you feeling comfortable and finding your way to, um, you know, live authentically in the profession, but it also probably was an important thing for those around you to, to see somebody into. So to kind of have that experience so that, like you said, you're not the one doing the emotional work, um, you know, and so those around us are kind of prepared to be inclusive and supportive. Yeah, and I think, Nate, that's, for me, that's what's really kind of valuable about, valuable about any lived experience is that kind of understanding whether it is that you're a victim of sexual assault, whether it is that you're neurodivergent, whether it is that you're LGBTQIA+, plus, or that you're Aboriginal, is that, um, is that you actually do have that understanding of, of other people um, their experiences, even if they're not necessarily the same as your experiences. So being able to put yourself in their shoes and understand that, you know, maybe they're not quite ready to talk about that thing yet or perhaps they need a bit more kind of um, understanding of what needs to happen in the environment. You know, they need they need signals and signs from you to know that this environment's safe for them to be themselves. So I think for me that kind of internal, you know, the personal insight in order to be able to kind of look at what other people might be experiencing, whether that is that they are part of the queer community as well or, or that their experience of diversity is, is different to mine, yet... Um, but similar in the sense that they aren't part of the the majority. Um, further to that, I suppose because of my own lived experience, um, I was you know I'm super curious about any research that um, involves LGBTQIA plus people. So I kind of have always been you know reading in that space in addition to my own discipline. And so, you know, where there were intersections of those things, so where, you know, we were seeing that in the LGBTQIA population, a lot of them were identifying as neurodivergent and, and in the autistic community, a lot of um, autistic and other neurodivergent people were identifying as, um, you know, sexually, they're having diverse sexual preferences or, um, you know, showing gender diversity. And so I think for me, those kinds of intersections kind of laid foundations to kind of be curious about other um, other research, other ways of practising, other kind of, um, yeah, ways of delivering services that perhaps I wouldn't have been immediately attuned to had my lived experience not been there. Um, I also um, was reflecting on this kind of question in advance of this morning with a colleague and I... Um, we were talking very much about that, that lived experience of um, 
experiencing discrimination um, has, I guess, kind of led me to be a bit more tuned in to who, you know, who's missing from the room, what voices are we not hearing, um, and, you know, being alert to the fact that I might have been silent at some point about my experiences. Um, and so I guess it's kind of leading me to, you know, think more broadly about, you know, who are the people that are marginalised? Um, are we seeing them? You know, what are their voices? You know, if we're not hearing from them, why aren't we hearing from them? And what things can we put in place to support them? And I guess that that has, in my current work, has really driven a focus in our strategic plan on how do we, how do we ensure that we're meeting the needs of um, diversity in all of its um, iterations. Um, and I think that that very much has, it makes services better, that when you're thinking about the experience of, of any individual um, marginalised group and you're thinking, what does my service look like for those people, um, you can then, it opens up things that make services better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so I mentioned earlier that you're a member of the SPA Executive Board. I um, wonder if, if you could talk to us a bit about how issues related to LGBTQIA plus individuals are positioned in the association and our strategic planning and, um, and in the profession. I think um, I have been the board's representative on the um, work that we're doing around the diversity, equity, inclusion framework. Um, which I think is a really important piece of work um, as the profession grows and as we um, ensure that we, as the speech pathology profession, are supporting um, diversity in our staff, not just in how we support um, diverse member, uh, diverse clients. Um, so I think that being able to have a range of platforms where we're talking about diversity in its broader sense and how we support inclusion um, is just so critical. And I think that that pervades every discussion. It's not just the bit that where we're talking about the diversity, equity and inclusion framework. It's it's every decision. It's what goes up in terms of our approach to marketing. It's what goes up in terms of, um, you know, position papers and the like and it doesn't mean we always get it right because you know I'm but one voice and every member of the board is working I guess the best that they can with what they've got um, but I think that it is it is really important that we're we're signaling how important it is that, that there are actually a range of us out there who represent different experiences and and that that's actually really good for our clients and it's really good for the community that there are diverse speech pathologists providing support to people with communication and swallowing difficulties. Well, Catherine Fordyce, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much, Nate. I appreciate it. Oh, well, we, I appreciate uh, you taking the time. It's been wonderful to speak with you and with our other contributors. Um, and I also want to thank our listeners. We hope you have an excellent Pride Month and that you'll join us again next week for another episode of Speak Up. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.